Hey everyone, this is Dave Forfaro. We are really excited today to have our first Poem Peeps Roundtable. We have a bunch of cystic fibrosis experts to talk about cystic fibrosis, new treatments, and sort of the revolution in care that's happened. Uh, as always, with me today is Christina. Hey Monty, how's it going? Hey Dave, it's Christina. I'm doing great today. I'm glad to be doing this and excited for all of our experts that we'll be talking to shortly. Yeah, me too. I feel a pretty dwarfed in this group, so I'm glad I can just defer all questions over to them. I'll start by introducing them first as Emily Domango. She is a professor of medicine at Columbia University Medical Center in New York. She's also the director of the John Edsel and John Wood Asthma Center and the Adult Cystic Fibrosis Center there. Uh, she also was one of my attendings when I was a fellow and taught me pretty much everything I know about asthma and CF. So I'm going to always refer to that way. Hey, Emily, how's it going? Hi, great. Hi, David. Hi, Monty. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this session and talking about this with my colleagues. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Next is Patrick Sosny. He is the Senior Medical Director of Cystic Fibrosis Clinical Development at Vertex Pharmaceuticals. And before that, he was an attending physician at Johns Hopkins, where I met him. Hey, Patrick, how are you? Hi, Dave. Hi, Monty. Thanks for having me on and looking forward to having the discussion. Including um, in our all-star all panel um, is Terry Laguna. Terry is an associate professor of pediatrics and is division head of pulmonary and sleep medicine at Lori Children's in Chicago, where she also serves as the associate director of the Cystic Fibrosis Center and director of the Primary Ciliary Dyskinesia Center of Excellence. Hey, Terry. Hey, Monty. Hey, Dave. Thanks for the invite. Of course. And rounding us out is uh, Natalie West, who is currently an assistant professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins. Um, and oversees clinical operations in our adult CF center and has been my primary mentor for the last five years. So everything I tell her, everything that I have learned from CF has come from her. In addition to Patrick, um, who who was also my attending at some point, I have to, I have to keep that in. Um, but great to have you here today, Natalie. Thank you so much, Monty and Dave. And Dave, I think there, that you should have said the same thing about me and Patrick. Instead of giving all of the credit to Emily, you should have said, we taught you a little bit of CF2. Yes, Maybe like definitely. 99% Emily, 1% me and Patrick. No, that's 100%. I, I should have given more credit. And actually, the other day during an episode, Monty and I were talking about bronchiectasis, and we literally paused and was like, oh, Natalie has that lectured. We have that somewhere to pull up your different distribution. So yes, you guys definitely have taught me uh, more than your fair share. I apologize. Great. Um, before we get into some questions today, you know, what is cystic fibrosis or CF? And as a reminder, CF is an autosomal recessive disorder caused by mutations in the cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator gene that affects over 30,000 individuals in the United States and over 70,000 individuals worldwide. So absence or dysfunction of the CFTR protein can lead to impairments in the pulmonary, gastrointestinal, as well as reproductive tracts. With recent advancements and improvements in care for people with CF, quality of life and survival for people with CF continue to improve. So let's get our question started. Yeah, thanks, Monty, for that overview. And now I feel a little self-conscious going to Emily, but I'm still going to for the first time. Natalie, I'll get, we'll get to you for sure. <laughs> um, 
So, Emily, can you just provide us with an overview of what the existing treatments have been for CF and how you've seen these evolve over the years? We're going to talk a lot about the new treatments that have come out, but what treatments are out there and what have we been relying on to, to help patients with CF? Yes, I'd be happy to. So I got involved in CF in the early 90s, and I remember my first CF conference, national conference, was in 1994 when Pulmazyme had just been FDA approved, and that was the first um, CF-specific drug to be FDA approved uh, for treatment. Um, and I remember when I went to the conference then, there was a lot of talk about Pulmazyme, which is alpha-dornase, I should use the generic term, um, a, a, a mucolytic to thin the mucus in CF. And there was a lot of excitement about that drug. It led to about a 6% improvement in lung function measured as FEV1. Um, and sort of the theme of that conference was pulmazyme was go, or alpha-dornase was going to um, improve the health of our patients to bridge them to lung transplantation, so to prolong uh, time to lung transplantation. Um, and this was five years after the CF gene had been discovered. Um, at that same conference, it was uh, the, uh, in Sports Illustrated, um, an article, uh, an interview of Boomer Esiason, which was really moving about how devastated he was and how responsible he felt to passing on this genetic disease to his son. And I was really struck at that conference by, oh, gee, is this all we really have? You know, medicine for a fatal, rapidly progressive disease, essentially, that only improves lung function by 6% and will help bridge people to lung transplant. Um, so that, that was a long introduction to the first FDA-approved drug for cystic fibrosis. Um, most of the therapies up until the modulators that I know Patrick and others will talk about were really based on the symptoms of CF. So we use pancreatic enzymes to treat pancreatic malabsorption, mucolytics like alpha-dornase, and then many years later, hypertonic saline to thin the thick mucus, um, and airway clearance to help expectorate these um, secretions to try and reduce infection frequency. Um, patients or continue to be advised to exercise a lot, both for general health and um, to improve mucos to improve uh, airway secretion clearance. Pseudomonas affects the majority of adults with cystic fibrosis and is associated with more rapid decline in lung function. So over the past two decades, we've seen many studies showing that if you suppress pseudomonas intermittently as it starts growing mostly in children, so if you delay chronic infection with pseudomonas, you could delay this more accelerated decline in lung function. So um, really looking for and aggressively treating pseudomonas as it comes up before it becomes chronic um, is now standard of care in CF, and that's a relatively new development. And then for those patients that uh, Natalie and I, um, as adult CF doctors, take care of. Most of them have chronic pseudomonas and are on inhaled uh, suppressive antibiotics. So I think I'm giving you in a nutshell the symptomatic treatment of CF that we have used uh, up until uh, we have this new class of drugs in, in the past uh, seven or eight years. It was all symptom-based and we treat acute exacerbations as they occur with either oral, inhaled, or intravenous antibiotics. So that was basically the mainstay of treatment uh, previously. 
That's awesome. Thank you so much. I have a, a follow-up question I actually want to ask to Terry, and I want to, I think Terry has something to comment on as well. You mentioned two things that you use as sort of endpoints, lung function based on FEV1, and then time to transplant. And then Terry, in addition to anything else you have to add, I'm just curious, are there any other metrics that you use in addition to those to think about how effective CF treatments are or things that you track? Well, you know, as a, as a pediatric lung doctor and taking care of children that have cystic fibrosis, you know, we meet these kids when they're babies and they can't do lung function until they're about five or six years of age. So we really don't have that metric to follow. And so, you know, we, we follow the same approach with aggressive airway clearance um, like the adults do. However, we just don't know who of our children are going to develop rapidly progressive lung disease who is going to be sicker um, than somebody else. And so everybody gets started on aggressive airway clearance, inhaled mucolytic medications, what we call the vest um, or airway clearance when they're about a year of age. So everybody gets um, a really pretty intense burden of care that they have to start early on, just trying to be as aggressive as possible to try to prevent any kind of of lung decline, and we're really dependent on symptoms. So if our kids cough, because they don't they don't talk to us, so they, I mean they they really have a hard time expressing kind of what's going on, and so we're going a lot by symptoms and what parents say. They're not eating as well. They're not as energetic. They're not running around. They're coughing during their sleep, but uh, but it's it's a bit different when we're trying to figure out what's going on more based on symptoms than actually on objective data. Yeah, I can only imagine how tough that is when your patients can't tell you exactly what's going on <laughs> my, from my few pediatrics days. Yep. Emily, like did you have something to add? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. well said. They have a tooth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Emily, did you have something you wanted to add as well? Yeah, just for the sake of completeness, I also wanted to talk about the um, attention to nutritional status that we have really from the time of birth and how important optimizing nutritional status is for respiratory health and reducing infections. Um, and that's, that's a one sentence, but it's a lot of work. And you can imagine the amount of struggles that parents have with children that uh, adult physicians have with their patients about this um, need to constantly increase caloric intake to keep the body mass index at its optimal um, level, which is BMI of 22 in women and 23 in men. Um, it takes quite a bit of work in a patient who has a rapidly metabolic state. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for adding it. And then I actually had one more question that I thought of is this, and I, you know, I think the best questions are the ones you don't know the answers to. So, you know, you mentioned the pseudomonas infection. Are do any of these studies of any of these drugs, and and maybe not the CFTR modulators, but some of the antibiotics and suppressive, use development of pseudomonas or you know a number of pseudomonas exacerbations as an endpoint, or is that just something we look at? That's something that we get worried about as a marker for having more progressively declining lung function. No, that's a great question. So the inhaled antibiotic studies use outcomes like pulmonary exacerbations and lung function um, as the primary drivers, but some of them, not all of them, have looked at pseudomonas density in the sputum. And my recollection is that the results are quite mixed. Some have been able to demonstrate that uh, density of pseudomonas goes down in sputum and others have not. Um, but those have really been secondary endpoints. The primary outcomes have mostly been pulmonary outcomes. Great. Well, I think that, yeah, we've had such a great discussion so far and, you know, it's important to learn about medications that have both, you know, an objective as well as subjective kind of data and, and endpoints. 
You know, I know over the years, though, with CF having a dysfunction, the CFTR gene, uh, we've had several new medications known as CFTR modulators that have been developed to restore CFTR function. And Patrick, I was wondering, can you tell us more about the details of how these CFTR modulators work or maybe discuss some of the, the current modulators available? Yeah, thanks, Christina. <clears throat> so the as you mentioned in your introduction when you were talking about the CF gene, uh, the CFTR gene, um, mutations of which cause cystic fibrosis, there's a lot of different mutations in that CFTR gene. There's actually more than 2,000 that have been characterized. So there's all of those mutations can be grouped into a couple different classes and that they affect um, the DNA or the protein in certain ways so that they could be grouped to think about therapies in uh, a specific way. A certain type of mutation might reach the cells, might cause the CFTR gene to reach the cell surface, um, but not conduct chloride or other types of mutations might not allow the CFTR protein to be folded correctly. And therefore it doesn't get to the cell surface and and can't do what it needs to do to conduct chloride and regulate the, um, you know, the epithelial homeostasis. CFTR modulators, in general, put most simply, are, are a type of medication that restore function to the mutated CFTR protein product. And CFTR, CFTR modulators can be grouped a little bit further into two different types. There are CFTR potentiators. Um, these are medicines like Ivacaftor, which um, was first approved by the FDA in 2012. We're coming up on almost 10 years um, uh, with Ivacaftor. And Ivacaftor or CFTR modulators specifically um, work to increase CFTR channel at the cell surface. So it actually helps the channel conduct chloride or other anions. Phil Thomas, who's a biochemist from Texas Southwestern, has got a great way of describing this that he did in a CF plenary a couple of years ago. And he talks about it as, oh, if you've got a field and you know that field is trying to keep the cows in a certain area, he'll describe um, particular mutations uh, that CFTR uh, potentiators might affect, that those particular mutations are, those are mutations actually in the gate where the gate doesn't open. There's another group of CFTR modulators called CFTR potentiators. And these, these are drugs like Lumicaptor or Tezicaptor, or there's newer, there's a newer uh, next generation CFTR uh, potentiator called Alexacaptor. And all of those CFTR potentiators work on different mutations specifically to increase the ability of the CFTR mutated protein to fold correctly and then get traffic to the cell surface appropriately. So in Phil Thomas's words, that would be actually getting more gates in the fence that you've got in your field. So uh, oftentimes, and especially for the most common mutation in cystic fibrosis, the Delta F508 mutation, the, we use combination therapies. Combination therapies have been used where CFTR potentiators and CFTR correctors are given, to, given together in combination to work to um, you know, get the CFTR mutated protein to function and to alleviate some of the downstream consequences of that channel defect. Thanks so much, Patrick. And I, um, I think it's funny that you actually refer to that um, analogy because Natalie and I were actually in clinic this afternoon and we had a second year um, house staff with us and I described it the exact same way to him. Um, so I think that's a, that's a good analogy that was made. 
Now, what was full, that? Full, full disclosure, what, what I would say, so Gary Cutting at Hopkins, who was my mentor, um, actually wrote a paper that described it in that way. Phil Thomas, you know, the biochemist is the one that made it extra folksy by describing it as a fence with um, gates and stuff. But but Gary Cutting really is the one that described it as it, it's either a problem with quantity or it's a problem with activity of the channels. Phil Thomas is the one that kind of, you know, put a good story on it, put a good spin on it. Yeah, well, it definitely worked because that, that's how I remembered it. Um, I told him, I, I, being from Texas, it was, um, I told him the cattle and the gates was easy for me to remember. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'm going to try to use that. And then there, some resident and med student students going to be like, yeah, I think he was talking about cows. I'm not sure what's going on. Patch <laughs> <laughs> clamping or cows, so, either, either or, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Natalie, you know, since the FDA has approved uh, the most recent uh, combination therapy, Alexacaftor, Tezacaftor, Ivacaftor, or, or Charcafta, in October 2019, can you describe the impact that it's had on the patients that you take care of in adult CF clinic every day? Honestly, it's been nothing short of a miracle. And and so when I first heard of Charcafta and its results after the six-month clinical trial, you know, FEV1 increasing by 10 to 13 percent, depending on what if you were on a previous modulator, the exacerbation rate going down by 65%, the sweat chloride going almost near normal. Um, I think we were all super excited. I wasn't really prepared for all the changes Trikafta was going to allow us to do. Um, and honestly, um, it, it's been looking a little different depending on patients. So some patients are taking the horse by the rein. They will come into clinic and say, yeah, I've stopped my hypertonic saline. I've stopped my alpha dornase mm. called Poemzyme um, because I don't need it anymore. I don't have anything else to cough up. Um, so it doesn't matter whether I do my Poemzyme or hypertonic. I'm just not coughing up anything anymore. Um, and and so, you know, obviously the, the approval of, of Trikafta coincided almost exactly with the beginning of the pandemic. And I was nervous because some of my patients were telling me I've stopped these things and I don't, I'm not seeing them in clinic. I'm not physically seeing them, not having PFTs to make sure their lung function was stable off some of these. Um, and, and the CF foundation is, um, I don't know if you know, Dave has paid for all CF patients in the United States to have home spirometers, which was, was really great and gave us some reassurance. They don't always work the way they're supposed to, but um, it did help me when we were doing all telemedicine that I'm like, okay, you've made these changes and your lung function is actually okay. And importantly, their symptoms have remained stable. And now that patients are back in clinic, we're actually seeing that, that, hey, they're, they're making these changes and their lung function is, is staying stable. Their symptoms are okay. And, and what has really shocked me is it's not just the people whose lung function is 70, 80, 90%. I'm, there's people whose lung function was... 35%, it went to 50 or 55% after Trikafta, and they're even stopping therapies. It's it's hard as a, I, I want to be like, oh, please be careful because I, I don't want you to get sick. But um, it's been it's been quite fascinating. And I think the other big parameter we've seen is just the drastic, drastic reduction in exacerbations. Again, I think this is part of the pandemic. Our CF patients, people with CF, they know how to isolate. They know how to mask. And so they really did that in the beginning. So the rate of exacerbations has, has gone down by almost like 85%, but that's probably part pandemic, part trichafta. And so we'll, we'll see once things eventually start opening up what happens. But 
it's been absolutely amazing. There's, um, there's a patient that, that I share with Patrick that I can't say his name, of course, but, um, who I took over his care after Patrick left Hopkins and he hasn't been on IVs for two or three years and someone who used to be on IVs three to four times a year. And so it's just really been quite dramatic. And now we're kind of left, I think, as a CF community being like, we need to redo some guidelines here because the care has changed and will need to change. And it's been quite, quite dramatic. Wow. It's unbelievably impressive. Yeah. I remember reading those trials is like a textbook example of what should happen. You know, the two curves completely separate very quickly. It's incredible to hear what it's actually looked like. Emily, have you had this, uh, similar experiences? And with, it, with that, I want to tag on a question. You know, I know some of the earlier CFTR modulators only work for some mutations. And I know we talked, Patrick talked about those different mutations. What percentage of your patients are seeing these benefits now? Is it everybody? Is it mo- vast majority? Is it still limited to a certain group that you're seeing in clinic? Yeah. So it, initially those early, so we kind of do separate some of them to highly effective modulator therapy, as, as Patrick described, some are better than others. And initially, I have a catheter for just very small proportion of our patients might have been, you know, five to 10%. But now the uh, tricapta is, is anyone who has one copy of Delta F508, which is 90% of our population. And so at least for adults, that's 90% of our adult patients in clinic. Terry can comment on the proportion just because it's not trickled down to all of the ages of the kids, but, um, but we're getting there. But that leads to a very important point is 10% of our patients with CF are not eligible for any later, which is really, really important. And I think it's, nobody wants to forget them and we want to still make sure we're getting them therapy in the future. Getting back to um, what Natalie mentioned about patients with severe lung disease showing improvement in lung function. There was a paper published out of France looking at that group and they showed that over 80% of their CF patients were able to come off of the lung transplant list. Um, and so Luke Benvenuto and I, just he's a lung transplant doctor here, just went onto the UNOS website and looked at the numbers of transplants for CF, and they're consistently around 225 per year. However, in 2020, it fell to 75. Now, you might say, well, that was the pandemic, but we looked at interstitial lung disease, COPD, and other indications, and they were pretty flat from 2019 to 2020. So, um, you know, I started off uh, talking about alpha-dornase and being able to delay lung transplant by a little bit, but I think both the French study and the UNOS data for the United States is really promising um, looking at the future of CF, and there are already very early indicators that um, this drug can really significantly delay transplant, maybe forever in some people, in many people. Uh, and I think that's really a positive, uh, a positive finding. That's amazing. You know, I definitely think that what we're seeing in the adult adult population is is really great and really just inspiring to be a CF provider at this time. Um, I do want to shift to you though, Terry. Um, just given your expertise um, with the pediatric um, population, you know, I know that the FDA has recently approved the use of Trikafta for children with CF ages six to eleven if they have at least one copy of the Delta F508 mutation. And I just want to know from you, Terry, how do you think this will change the lives of children with CF? Yeah, so I I can tell you that every parent or guardian of a child who has CF with one copy of the Delta F508 mutation was literally counting the days 
until the FDA approved the medication for their child. We had families calling, asking if we had any news about when this was going to happen. And finally, the first week of June was when it was approved for the six to 11 year olds. Um, it's, it really has been a game changer for us, but for a different reason. So Emily and Natalie were talking about, you know, the treatment of established lung disease of people who may be on a transplant list, people who have established existing lung disease, um, feeling better, having improvement in their lung function and coming off their medications. In kids, we actually may be talking about them really never experiencing any symptoms of cystic fibrosis. So eventually the, the, the goal is to have these medications approved down to months, if not days of life, where a baby born may be started on Trikafta and may never, never have an, a, a symptom of CF. You know, these medications, when they were studied in our six to 11 year olds um, who are healthier, who have higher lung function to start with, I think the average FEV1 was 88% predicted in the trial looking at six to 11 year olds, and they still went up on average 10 percentage points. They still had all the benefits of weight gain, Etc. Less exacerbations. It's it's just, you know, they even though they were healthier, they everybody still got that benefit, and so it's entirely plausible that if you start these medications early, they may never have symptoms of CF. And I know as a pediatric pulmonologist, I meet you know cystic fibrosis is diagnosed by newborn screen, and so I meet babies when and families when they're ten days, fourteen days old. And my conversation with these families has completely shifted. You know, it used to be, you know, yes, median life expectancy is in the 40s. We're going to do everything we can to have your child live a long, healthy life. Now it's there is a medication. And depending on the genotype, you may never, you know, my, my job is to keep you as healthy as possible until you are ready to start that modulator. And you may never have a symptom of CF. It is, it's just entirely... It's changed how we talk about it. I do want to emphasize, I know we're going to talk about in a little bit, you know, the 10% that doesn't qualify for a modulator. And that's, that's hard because you have an entire CF community that is celebrating the approval of such a magical medication that there are about 10% of the population that doesn't qualify for. And those are, those are even more difficult conversations to have with a family who's got a, a baby born with a genotype that does not qualify them for a modulator. So we still have work to do, uh, but however, those patients who qualify for Trikafta, those kids, it's a game changer. Tara, I'm really glad you brought that up. I mean, it's incredible to hear and, and to think about what those conversations may be like now. But I'm also really glad you brought up that other 10%. And I want to shift over to Patrick. Patrick, in terms of these recent developments, what is out there for sort of future CF treatments? This can be about maybe those patients who have rare mutations that are not eligible for the current modulators, or if there are other treatments out there that are in the pipeline in addition for the population with uh, uh, Delta 508, that would be great to hear about too. Yeah, so I, I group that into kind of three different ways, Dave, um, in that there are trials that are going on with the existing CFTR modulators. And there, those trials are in two ways. We mentioned in the United States, the um, FDA approval for Alexacaptor, Tezacaptor, Ivacaptor is for patients with at least one copy of a Delta F508. Um, the most common mutation, and that gets to about 90%. In other parts of the world, particularly in Europe, the the 
the label is more limited and they are looking for increasing data. Um, so right now the label is limited to just a subset of the population, um, not everybody that's got a Delta F508. So there are trials underway with CFTR modulators um, to continue to provide evidence of whether or not uh, Alexacaptor, Tezacaptor, Ivacaptor is beneficial for that entire 90% that has access in the US. The second <laughs> relates to what Terry was talking about. With all drug development, we sort of start by proving a drug is efficacious and safe in an adult population and then generally move down to more and more vulnerable populations. So, so you know, we starting with uh, FDA approval last in 2019 uh, of Avicaptor in patients 12 and older. Um, you know, move down to recent the approval for those six to eleven, and currently there's trials underway um, for lexicaptor, ivacaptor in two to five year olds. So continuing to march down to younger and younger ages. There are new trials. Uh, Vertex in particular has a new trial of a new CFTR modulator that works like Alexacaptor, Tezacaptor, Ivacaptor that currently just began phase three. Um, there's interest from other drug companies and there's other drug company trials in the CFTR modulator space that'll work in similar ways to the existing CFTR modulators. But Dave, you touched on and, and Terry touched on the 10% that, that don't make a CFTR protein, that their type of mutation doesn't produce any CFTR protein at all. So therefore, it's not amenable to a small molecule that's designed to fix the, the protein that's made. And those 10% are going to require novel types of therapies. And the particular therapies that, that there's most scientific interest in those are nucleic acid-based therapies and then either gene replacement uh, or gene editing. Um, so a lot of the new uh, CRISPR, Cas9 um, <clears throat> technologies that have been used in a lot of different diseases, there's a lot of excitement about using those therapies in cystic fibrosis. None of that... Um, uh, has progressed very far um, yet, but that, that's where most of the um, clinical trials in that space for the, that 10% are going. Yeah, so it sounds like a lot of exciting things in the works and then still a lot of questions and uh, to answer and a lot of work to do. Patrick, you mentioned a few things about the, that 10% we've touched on, but also differences in different countries, differences in ages and differences in patients uh, with uh, ability to access these drugs. So Terry, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, how you sort of describe the faces of cystic fibrosis currently, and are there any disparities in CF care or research that we need to be aware of and things that we can do to sort of prioritize health equity for all patients with cystic fibrosis? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I think one that really is at the forefront of, uh, of our minds, uh, you know, with, with these new modulator medications, you know, a 90% of the population that qualifies for them, by definition, it's the most common mutation. The Delta F508 mutation we've been talking about is the most common mutation in a white population. So, you know, the majority of these medications um, are good in people who have genotypes that are common in a, in a white population. And so I think the, the problem that we see is that, you know, the majority of people that 10% that don't qualify have rare genotypes. So their, you know, their CFTR protein is different or the CFTR gene is different, um, the mutations they have than the Delta F508. And these medications don't work on those types of genotypes. And so those people tend to be from black and brown communities. And so this, you know, has really 
just highlighted um, a disparity that does exist because the majority of people who don't qualify tend to be from black and brown communities. I will say for a long time though, CF has largely been considered a disease of the white population. And, you know, the, you know, being, being prior to being in Chicago, I worked in Minnesota, um, which has a large CF center, uh, but the demographics of our CF population, so the people who go to that center are quite different from what I see now in Chicago. So here in Chicago, over a third of our patients identify as Latinx and almost 15% are black. Um, we also have a number of other different races and ethnicities within the center that have rare genotypes. So almost a third of the patient population that we take care of here does not qualify for a CFTR modulator. So that's a large number of patients that don't. Um, and so, you know, I think it just has accentuated some of the disparities given that these communities don't have access to these medications. You know, in addition, I also think that it's, you know, the, the Latinx, the black communities um, have, they have a different, they have different needs, they have a different culture and the support groups and the support from CF programs and CF centers and the CF foundation really needs to be tailored to these communities. You know, Spanish speaking support groups, having, you know, CF conferences translated and broadcast in Spanish or other languages. Um, I think that this, the past year um, has really, really put a spotlight on a lot of these healthcare disparities. And, you know, the CF Foundation has some work to do, as do all the centers and how we talk with our families, um, how we support our families. Um, and then the research, you know, obviously the, the commitment on behalf of the CF Foundation to not leave anybody behind and really focus on all the research to identify a medication for everybody or a treatment for everybody. So, you know, we certainly have some work to do um, but it definitely has accentuated some, some of the disparities. While a community is celebrating Trikafta, there are a number of communities um, who are appropriately saddened and disheartened that they don't qualify. Yeah, thanks so much, Terry, for talking about that and discussing that. You know, I definitely think over the last year, as you mentioned, there's been some kind of resurfacing or surfacing for the first time some, you know, the, the health equity issues within pulmonary and critical care medicine, you know, specifically, but within CF, you know, as one of as one of the domains. As you mentioned, there are definitely support from the CF Foundation and other programs to to help tackle this. And you know, I do want to shift to you, Natalie, as well, just as, as your clinical interest and expert in women's health and CF. I want you to see if you could kind of add on to what, what Terry said, but can you comment more on how you think sex and gender may impact clinical outcomes in people with CF? Sure. And so it's it's been known for a long time in the CF community that um, women with CF actually have shorter life expectancy than males with CF, so on the order of about two years. And so the, the, the reasons for this are not totally um, clear. Um, there's a lot of um, hypotheses about how estrogen can affect exacerbation rates, infection, and even ion transport within the lungs and how it affects the mucociliary clearance. Um, Monty, as you know, with your own research that you and I do together that you lead, Monty's done a great uh, registry project with the CF Foundation Patient Registry that is showing that females actually have a higher rate of exacerbations in every age throughout their life, beginning about six, and doesn't really equal out until menopause hits. So the, the effect of sex hormones is, is definitely playing a role here and, and how to kind of combat that. We're, we're still working that out. And so the CF Foundation actually funds the Women's Health Research Working Group, which 
I'm one of the founding five members, and there's a lot, a lot of research ongoing to try and kind of figure out some of this. And some of the areas are looking at exacerbations and treatment of exacerbations with women and um, also looking at the effect of contraception and pregnancy and um, even looking at things like urinary incontinence and, and how we can help women women with that. You know, it's, it's quite interesting. I'm also part of um, the STOP program with an exacerbation group. And we recently um, just finished a very large clinical trial. And we noticed when we're looking at different factors of what makes exacerbation treatment better and looking at whether patients do better if they spend some time in the hospital versus all at home. And what we found is that women, when they go home, they do worse, probably because they're taking care of everyone else besides themselves. Um, so there's a lot to be to be worked out here. And I think that the women's group is, we're really charging ahead to try to find some some answers and, and management strategies. Thanks, Natalie. And as a follow-up question for you, do you know, are there any sex differences in the differential bonds profile to drug therapies in people with CF? In terms of, of the first CFTR modulator that was approved, I have a catheter, like Patrick said, and almost 10 years ago now, there's um, a follow-up study. So the CF Foundation always has um, large follow-up studies for each uh, CFTR modulator that's approved. And so the goal study followed these people long-term. And what um, they found in about 150 patients or so that were followed long-term, they looked at things like lung function, exacerbation rate, sweat chloride. And so they found that the exacerbation rate over that time was actually higher in males. So it really um, fit some of the findings that Monty, you have found. Um, But what was interesting, though, was that the reduction in exacerbations was actually higher in females than males over that time period. So perhaps Ivacaps are starting to level out um, and maybe more modulators that that difference in exacerbation rates. But I think it's too early to tell, obviously, with Tricapta, which is more widely available. Great. Thank you so much. seems like there's there's a lot of work to be done in, in a lot of different areas. Um, Terry, do you have anything to add? Dave, I just wanted to, to take you back to the comment that you made at the start of this segment, which was, you know, you asked me about the faces of CF care. And I, you know, in listening to Natalie and, you know, Monty talk, it's, I think I'm viewing it now as us providing the voice to those faces because those faces have existed. We've known for a long time that the life expectancy of is, in women is less than men. We've known for a long time that, you know, children that are Latinx get pseudomonas earlier. They have lower lung function. You know, people who are not white die younger than their white counterparts. And, you know, so I, I think it's now what we're finding now are people you know, taking taking the on the voices of those people. So people like Natalie and the and the women's health group, you know, people like myself and other people out in the CF Foundation that are doing research and really focusing and talking about these issues and really trying to do something about it. So I view, you know, part of our job is to be the voice of those people that have been out there for a long time. Um, but now hopefully we're trying to remedy some of those situations. Yeah, it's great to hear it's going that way. I always think of cystic fibrosis as uh, one of the diseases whose the patients have a, a loud voice that they use, and I'm so happy about that. But you know, you always you miss out on whose voices you're not hearing with that sometimes. So I'm glad that that work is taking place. Um, Emily, I want to shift over to you. I know we've talked about some area, some opportunities as well as challenges that as CF providers and researchers we're facing right now. 
What are you seeing kind of in your patient population? What are some opportunities or challenges that your patients with CF are facing now that they're living longer with advanced treatments? Oh, that's a great question. I think one that we all think about a lot. You know, certainly in adults who are started on these highly effective modulators, most of them come to the table with a lot of pre-existing structural lung disease. And as we've all talked about, many of them are discontinuing therapies because they're asymptomatic. But we really don't know if that's okay in the long run. And uh, a challenge that I, I have, and I think all of us have, is what to do with those patients who have chronic pseudomonas. Even though they're not coughing and they don't have sputum production, um, if that pseudomonas is not suppressed, will they fare worse than those patients who continue to take suppressive antibiotics? So I think a big challenge with the highly effective modulator therapy, and hopefully one that will only exist in this generation, um, because eventually people, kids will be starting it very young, is really how to manage the existing lung disease, even in the absence of symptoms. You know, this until now thought of as a fatal disease with progressive uh, decline in lung function. And, you know, there's always a concern that we're being too complacent uh, because patients aren't symptomatic. We just need to collect more data, I think, in the next five to 10 years to have an idea of what's happening with these asymptomatic patients who discontinue therapies in terms of uh, progression of lung disease. So I think that's gonna be a big challenge. In terms of research, I think that's a wide open area now is, is precisely that, because in my own experience, I, I, I don't see the highly effective modulators really reducing chronic infection a lot. Sometimes it appears that people no longer grow pathogens like Pseudomonas or MRSA, but we just don't know if it's a sampling error because people aren't really expectorating anymore. So I think that's a really interesting area of research is um, studying the path of pseudomonas airway inflammation and disease progression in the presence of highly effective modulators, pseudomonas and other pathogens. As a follow-up question, you know, that may be applicable to um, you as well as Natalie. You know, one of, one of the patients I saw in clinic today was excited just to talk about how healthy she was feeling with being on modulators, is planning an upcoming wedding, and actually is thinking about having a family in the next couple of years. And I was wondering if either of you can comment on, you know, what you've been seeing or maybe, you know, how family planning is now being um, evolved with recent advances as well. I, I can start with this one. Um... Yeah, so the number of pregnancies that we have had over the past two years is, has just been amazing with both men and men and women. Certainly, well, not men being pregnant, but you guys know what I mean, having families. Um, so lots of pregnancies with our, our, our women patients, um, just because Trikafta has improved things so much, they are, first of all, wanting to get pregnant, realizing they're going to have a longer life and they're feeling better and they can take care of another individual besides themselves, you know, but also Trikapta is enabling, um, making that easier. But we've also had some, some men who um, have had um, children with their, their partners. And so it's, it's been really great. And then I think now it's, 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 it's a lot of question of, okay, I want to become a parent. What are all my options? So even for, patients who don't think that they can carry a child, we are starting to talk about adoption and, you know, surrogacy or other other options. And it's actually a big topic of our women's health research group is parenthood in general. And Tracy Kasmerski is leading that that um, part of our her research and, um, and the foundation is supporting that as well. Just there's going to be a long-term study looking at parenthood and how that affects health and, and all that. But it's it's been quite exciting 
for CF people with CF to think that when they were born, they weren't going to live past 20, but now they're talking about having children of their own. That, that's pretty amazing. I was going to ask Natalie and Patrick, but you kind of already touched on it, but really anybody just curious what you're most excited about for the CF community, both for the patients and then for clinicians and researchers, what things are coming around the corner or are you, or are you really looking forward to in the next five, 10 years uh, in cystic fibrosis? I, I can start off and I, I would say it's two things, Dave. Number one, the science remains really excited. When I talk to academic pulmonologists, when I talk to other people in biotech and drug development, you know, in the pharma space, and I say I work on cystic fibrosis, they're really excited because they know the successes that have been achieved and what's coming. And it's really um, exciting that, that some of that science energy is turning towards the 10% of patients that Terry talked about that, that don't have therapies of disease, that the, um, the tremendous resources that the CIA Foundation and, and the biotech community have is being directed towards, towards patients. So that's really great to see. But, but the second, and it's a lot more personal, and it's exactly what, what Natalie and Christina talked about, is it's great to see the articles and it's great to see the the, the curves in the CFF registry data, but but I, I used to have clinic on Tuesdays and very often on Tuesday afternoons after I moved up here to Vertex, I would get texts from Natalie or emails from the nurses and they would tell me stories of what's happening with patients. And when it translates to the stories that, that Natalie, that each of you guys have described and, and thinking about their how it's affecting their individual lives, that, that's what has me you know, excited to go to work in the morning, um, excited to keep working on this. And I think there are many more successes to come. Yeah, I'll echo that. It's, it's, it's the lives that our patients get to lead. As Patrick has said, and by the way, I always ask for HIPAA reasons, am I allowed to text Dr. Sosne and tell him how well you're doing? <laughs> Everyone always says yes. Um, but yeah, when you know these people for, you know, 10, 15 years, you know their family, you know their their brother, you know their their spouse, their parents, and to see them um, get to lead these lives that they never thought they would has just been phenomenal. I think the other thing I'm excited about is is also the research aspect, but it's also kind of the shift in research. So it's a shift in the way we're thinking. So a lot of clinical trials previously, your endpoint is their FEV1, and then perhaps their reduction in exacerbations. And we can't really use hardly either of those anymore. There's got to be, so a lot of talk is like, we've got to really shift the way that we do research and kind of, well, sometimes I think that's frustrating. So I'm like, wait, I already know how to do it the other way. Um, so then trying to to figure out a different way to, to make a clinical endpoint and make it meaningful has been, has been really interesting to talk about. Thanks, Natalie. Terry, can you comment on on what you're most excited about? Yeah, absolutely. I I'm most looking forward to not having to have those devastating conversations with parents anymore. Um, I mean, those are some of the most difficult conversations that I have in my in my practice and in my, that I've had in my career is sitting down with a family who has no idea what cystic fibrosis is except for what they've read on the internet between the time they got the phone call that they have a positive newborn screen and the time they come to see me. And they're devastated. They are, they're worried. They think their child is going to die at an early age, that they're never going to grow up and be able to, to do the things that children and adults do. And so to be able to have that conversation and say, you know what, we have a medicine for your child and we're going to start it today and your child may never have a symptom of CF. 
um, I'm most excited to have those conversations. So where there's going to be hope and excitement as opposed to that devastation that accompanies those first conversations. Yeah, here's to when you never have one of those again. <laughs> never a conversation where you can't offer something again. Yeah. <laughs> Emily, go ahead. Yeah, no, I agree. Of course, seeing our patients make plans for the future is just worth everything. It's so exciting going to graduate school, getting married or other endeavors. But another thing I'm really excited about in terms of research is gene therapy and CRISPR. CF has really um, led the scientific initiative, I think, in personalized medicine with these precision medicine drugs. And I know there's a lot of work to be done in the arena of CRISPR and, and gene therapy for CF. But um, I'm confident that if any rare disease can conquer this, it's CF. So I'm really excited about what the next years will bring um, in the study. The other, the other great thing about it is um, CF is uh, the, the people that get attracted to CF. Um, you know, we're all friends. Uh, you know, I, I, I can say that, um, you know, safely here. But the fact that people like, you know, Christina are doing CF. You know, the, the, the fact that it continues to attract really smart, really caring trainees, um, you know, on the scientific side, on the medicine side, on, you know, all of the multidisciplinary CF care, um, the, the, you know, that, the fact that people, great people are do, keep doing CF uh, also is, uh, I think, a, a, you know, lends itself to a very bright future. A lot of days in a good way, I feel like a primary care doctor. I'm taking care of a bunch of healthy people. <laughs> so, it, you know, who knew? <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Patrick, way to make me feel bad on my own podcast. I appreciate it. Maybe I should go back into CF. <laughs> no, 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 That's awesome. The conferences uh, and are I a lot of fun, say, Dave. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I look forward to the time when conferences exist again, <laughs> in person at least. Yeah. I think this has been a, a really um, inspiring last hour um, for myself to hear and um, really that the four of you, um, Terry, Emily, Patrick and Natalie um, are truly remarkable. And Dave and I really thank you for um, doing this with us today. And we hope, you know, those listening um, can be inspired as well. You know, hopefully some future trainees in medicine that will one day take um, follow in our footsteps. So thank you again for, for your participation. Thank you for inviting us. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. This has been great. Thank you, Monty and Dave. Great to talk with you guys. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for our first official episode of Palm Peeps. Make sure to come back in two weeks when we'll have our first case-based episode launching. Ansa Razak will take us through an unknown case, and we'll work through it all together. This episode was recorded, produced, and edited by myself and Christina Montemayor, and the music is original music produced by Eric Rogers. Thank you.